0: Hello, all my wonderful listeners, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and we are covering some Valentine's Day cases. So it is fast approaching. If you're listening to this on Sunday when it's coming out, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. And while I've gotten a lot of listener suggestions over the last couple weeks, these ones actually are not. I am just kind of doing this around the holiday, and it seemed fitting to cover Valentine's Day cases on the week of Valentine's Day. But I am bringing in some extra heartbreak into your Valentine's Day, because both of these cases are unsolved. So without further ado, let's get into it. Edward Trimbach Jr., who went by the name Billy, was born on September 30th, 1966. Billy and his family spent many of his childhood years in Carlin, Nevada. As Billy got older, he actually became a really talented mechanic. Billy married his first wife in Nevada, and they had two children together. And while the relationship did not last, he was still a really active dad in his child's lives. Now, during the course of his first marriage, he and his wife had moved to Colorado. After that union ended, Billy married a woman named Cindy, and they were married on Valentine's day of 1992. And their nuptials took place in Stoneham, Colorado, which is just about two hours Northeast of Denver, pretty much directly east of Fort Collins on highway 14. The two had also settled in the small town and had an infant daughter together. Billy, in addition to his two children from his previous marriage, and he and Cindy's daughter, he also played the role of stepdad to Cindy's then nine-year-old son. As I said, the family settled down in Stoneham, and their home was on Highway 14, just west of town. A year after their marriage, on February 14, 1993, Cindy called into the police and reported Billy missing. She told authorities that she had not seen Billy since the previous morning on February 13th. So at this point, it had been a full 24 hours almost. And it wouldn't be long before Billy was found. The 27-year-old, who would have been celebrating his first wedding anniversary with Cindy in that year, 1993, was found in Morgan County on the side of the road. And unfortunately, Billy was not just having car troubles. He was deceased. His body was found north of I-76 Frontage Road, just west of the town of Wiggins. This was located about 45 minutes southwest from his home. And it was clear to investigators that Billy had been shot. And from what they determined, this shot came from a 9mm handgun. Looking into the scene more closely, it was found that Billy did not die at the location where his body was found. Evidence in the area indicated that he'd been shot somewhere else, put in a vehicle, and then taken to the side of the road where he was found. Evidence at the crime scene showed that his body had been drugged from a vehicle, and investigators thought that it was most likely put there on Saturday night, so the night of February 13th. Cindy's nine-year-old son was the last one to see Billy alive. He told police that he had watched him leave with an unidentified man, and it's assumed that this man was maybe looking for help with his car or some kind of other mechanical help. As we know, the people closest to a victim are always the ones looked at first. The spouse, the kids, the family. And Cindy did not do herself any favors regarding her actions in the time around when Billy's body was found. She mentioned to police that she had driven past the area where Billy's body was eventually found. And this would have been again on the night of the 13th on Saturday night after she'd not seen him all day. But it sounds like she wasn't necessarily looking for Billy. And this area, like I said, was 45 minutes away from their home. And looking further, investigators did not find that Billy nor Cindy had any friends, family, or acquaintances in Wiggins. And there really would have been no reason, even if she was looking for him, to be in that area. So, needless to say, this remark was really suspicious to the sheriff as he too had actually been in that same area where Billy's body was found and had seen a couple of cars as he was driving by. So he wondered after the fact if he had inadvertently come across Billy's body being dumped on the roadway that night and had no idea. So let's talk about some of the other suspicious things that Cindy did. Prior to Billy going missing, Cindy had taken out a $500,000 life insurance policy on him. Now, the couple was newly married and they did have an infant child, so this maybe would not seem super strange, but the thing that made it strange was that Billy's name was forged on the insurance policy. He hadn't actually signed the policy himself. Police would later think that Cindy had some motive here because she had contracted HIV from her previous husband, and that HIV had turned into AIDS in her system. This meant that Billy worked a lot of extra time to cover her medical expenses, and even included paying for them to try alternative treatments. The couple had even gone down to Mexico seeking additional and alternative treatment for her AIDS. If Cindy could cash in on this insurance money of $500,000, it could provide for her care for a long time. But it's not just circumstantial evidence like this that police started to gather. There's also some physical evidence that points to Cindy's involvement. Investigators did find small amounts of Billy's blood in the backseat of Cindy's Chevy Suburban. Investigators believed that either Billy's bloody body or someone with his blood on them had been in the car. Also some of the items found at the crime scene indicated Cindy's presence. These items were found near Billy's body and were also items that Cindy was known to keep in her suburban. Lastly, Billy owned a nine mm handgun, and this gun was not found in the home when it was searched. And as I said before, Billy's wounds were consistent with that of a nine millimeter. Amidst this investigation, Billy was laid to rest, and Cindy and her son moved. They relocated to Butte, Montana. And an odd incident in Montana would cause Cindy to contradict the story she had told Colorado investigators. Her son started getting bullied at school due to the other students knowing his mom had AIDS. And Cindy went into the school to talk to administrators about this. She proceeded to tell faculty at the school that her son had watched his stepfather be murdered and that that could account for some of his behavior and lashing out from being bullied. But this bizarre story doesn't end there. As the bullying continued, in 1994, Cindy's son decided to take his mother's gun to school. He was 10 at the time. He ended up killing a classmate with a shot to the head. This classmate was only 11 years old. Cindy's son was not charged due to his young age, but he was put in a psychiatric facility. Years and years after Billy's murder, Cindy's son recanted his claim that he had watched Billy leave with an unknown man, and he instead told investigators that he had made the story up and that he was pretty confident that his mother had killed Billy or had had some hand in it. Police never got to further question Cindy about Billy's killing because she died of her disease the year after Billy was murdered in 1994. In 1997, investigators would receive a tip when a local man said that Billy was killed most likely to settle a debt over drugs. And there have been rumors of a Fort Morgan drug dealer saying he and another person killed Billy. And this was something that investigators did look into. In the process of the investigation, police had gotten in contact with Cindy's former drug dealer. But this lead was not really ruled very credible as there was no indication that Billy used drugs or was involved in the sale of drugs. So they weren't really sure how he'd even get connected with these people for this to happen. There was a suspect that arose in 1998, but his attorney blocked efforts for investigators to interview him. And after the police had contacted this individual, he actually committed suicide. The man said that he was the only person still alive who could be blamed for Billy's death. According to CBS4 Denver's reporting on this case, investigators still believe that the 1998 suspect killed himself, quote, fearing he was going to be the only person prosecuted for involvement in this case, unquote. And with that, nothing happened in the case for another 10 years. And then on April 4th, 2008, there was an arrest made in Greeley, Colorado of 37-year-old James Sam England. So police initially arrested him for car theft, but England also had warrants from both Morgan and Alamosa counties for felonies and misdemeanors. One of these charges even included theft of two shotguns. England had been living in Greeley under an alias And police even had a chance to arrest him the prior month in March 2008 after a hit-and-run accident, but England gave a false name and got away. According to Jeffrey Wolf's reporting for Nine News, authorities have said that England told them, quote, he will not be taken alive, unquote. England is very familiar with authorities. He's served previous sentences for charges like drug dealing and violating parole, in addition to other arrests. And according to Jeffrey Wolf's reporting, these arrests include assault, burglary, auto theft, and weapon offenses. Now, this hits the news pretty hard over a couple of days and then falls off again. So I don't really have much more information of what happens with England after that. But since then, no suspects or charges have come up. Investigators really pushed hard again in 2018 when it was the 25th anniversary of Billy's death. According to Paul Albani-Bergio's reporting for the Fort Morgan Times, Morgan County Sheriff released a statement that they believe, quote, there are persons out there who have direct knowledge of the case, unquote. But regardless of this push on the 25th anniversary of Billy's murder, the case is still unsolved, now 29 years later. Billy was buried in Stoneham, Colorado next to his father, Ed, and Uncle Dan. There's a plaque for Billy at Carlin Park in Nevada where he grew up and a flowering plum tree planted in his memory. The most common and accepted theory is that Cindy ordered a hit on Billy in order to cash in on the insurance money. Investigators have come up with a pretty firm theory of what happened in accordance to some tips they have received. And keep in mind, as I explain this, that this is kind of just put out there. We don't know exactly what investigators are seeing to put this all together, but this is what they've deduced at this point. According to Paul Albani-Bergio's reporting for the Fort Morgan Times, they believe that, quote, Billy may have been killed at a residence southeast of Wiggins, and may have been killed accidentally during an attempt to intimidate him. Unquote. Somewhere along the line, investigators were notified that two people had said that they were involved in the shooting of Billy Trimbach. According to this lead, the original plan was to put Billy's body in Jackson Lake, which is about an hour southwest of Stoneham and just north of Wiggins where his body was actually found. But... They did not make it there when the car had mechanical issues, which, yes, the irony is not lost on me because Billy was a mechanic. Essentially, their payment for snuffing out Billy would be some of his very expensive mechanical tools. Now, I've seen in a couple places there's a conflicting story on what happened to the gun or conflicting theory, I should say. Some sources say that it was dismantled and disposed of in different places, And another says that it's buried in Fort Morgan at someone's residence. Regardless of this theory, investigators shared with the public what their biggest challenge in this case is. According to CBS4 Denver's reporting on the case, a statement from the Morgan County Sheriff's Office explained, quote, investigators have been hampered in this case due to some of the bizarre circumstances in this case lack of evidence, plus many people involved were or are methamphetamine users and their information was either discredited by others or could not otherwise be corroborated. We are hoping discussing this may generate some witnesses or new information to be able to solve this case, unquote. If you have any information on Billy's disappearance or murder, please call the Morgan County Sheriff's Office at 970 867 2461 or the Northern Colorado Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. So this episode does have two cases in it. So let's wrap up with some thoughts on Billy's case. Musing number one. The first thing that struck me about this case are the similarities to the Randy Wilson case, which we covered in episode 15. In that case, Randy was somehow lured back out of his house after getting home. And he wasn't shot, but he was also dumped on a rural road. And that just really stuck out to me. And you could totally go down like the rabbit hole here of if these two could be connected. They are in a somewhat similar area of Colorado, but still kind of far away. And the timing is totally different. Billy's case took place in the 90s, and Randy Wilson's was much more recent. Doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything, but it was something that definitely struck me as I was covering the details of this case. Musing number two. So I want to touch base on this whole thing about Billy's blood being found in Cindy's car. Now, you could initially explain this away of, could have got a finger cut, could have got whatever, he's in the car, it's his wife, why wouldn't there be maybe some blood in his car, her car, and a home, whatnot. But the thing that I found really interesting was that These traces of blood were found in the back seat. So Cindy and Billy had children. Cindy had her nine-year-old and they had their infant daughter together. So if they were traveling somewhere, wouldn't the children be in the back seat? And Billy would be in the front seat in either driver or passenger seat. So it does seem a little suspicious. And I know you're probably wondering about the items that were found at the crime scene that seemed similar to things that would be in Cindy's car. Those items have not been laid out to the public and I'm assuming are being held back in order to determine if if leads that come in are credible or not. Musing number three. So the arrest made in Greeley in 2008 of James Sam England, like I said, information on that kind of totally drops out of the public eye. So I wonder if there's either not enough information to hold or press charges on him, or if it was just found that he wasn't connected. A lot of times on these cases that aren't these huge national cases, they kind of get reported on as stuff comes up, but it doesn't always get closed on the back end of things versus these larger national cases, people are just like vying for information, so every tiny thing gets reported on. But cases like this that come just in and out of the news, like I said, there might be a development and then it's kind of never the loose ends are never tied up to say like oh never mind or whatever it may be musing number four i'm gonna throw a really weird theory out there i kind of already did with mentioning randy wilson but what if in trying to manage her aid symptoms cindy had some kind of drug issue and basically billy was caught in the crossfire i have to wonder though they looked really closely into billy using and that really being a factor And I think they would have come across that. Doesn't mean it would be public knowledge, but clearly Cindy maybe had some connections in some not so desirable circles. So it makes you wonder how she made said connections. But I sure hope we know at some point, but it's not looking great right now. Musing number five. I would really encourage you to read more about Billy on his obituary link. I have included this at altitudecrime.com. It's basically like a virtual memorial, and it's got a lot of pictures of Billy and a lot about his family. And actually, the family has continued to add to it over the years. It's kind of served as like a diary to Billy from his family, very obviously. They do updates of, you know, so-and-so got married, so-and-so turned 21. So it's been a very open and obviously a healing thing for his family. Additionally, if you do read this, it is very obvious that they do believe that Cindy is responsible for Billy's death. Our next case takes place in Littleton, Colorado, just about 25 minutes south of the heart of Denver on February 14th, 2000. Nick Kunzelman was working at the subway just south of his high school at 6768 West Coal Mine Avenue. His girlfriend, Stephanie Hart-Grizel, went in and waited for him to clock out. The two were high school sweethearts and attended Columbine High School. Nick was 15 and Stephanie was 16. At about 1247 a.m., officers responded to a call when one of Subway's employees drove by and noticed that the lights were on way after the restaurant would have been closed. Now, note there are some conflicting reports here. Some say that that is what happened and others say that the employee themselves went inside and then called police. But regardless, that is where Nick and Stephanie's bodies would be found and Stephanie's mom would find out about her daughter's murder in a very roundabout way. Stephanie had actually snuck out that night without her mom knowing, and her mom did not find out until the next morning when she was watching the news and coverage about the shooting showed Stephanie's car in the parking lot of the subway. According to Blair Miller's reporting for the Denver Channel, Stephanie's mom, Kelly Grizel, said, quote, the last thing I said to her was, good night. I love you. I'll never forget that. Unquote. Nick and Stephanie's murder would echo another tragedy in Littleton, Colorado. The two attended Columbine High School, where they had just endured the shooting on April 20th, 1999, just 10 months prior to their murders. Now, if you're unfamiliar or have been living under a rock, In the Columbine High School shooting, two students opened fire on their school, killing 12 students, one teacher, and then turned the guns on themselves. At the time that it happened, it was the deadliest school shooting in the United States, and the incident really shaped how law enforcement handled school shootings in the future, as this was something that was pretty unfamiliar to them at that point. Needless to say, It caused Nick and Stephanie's case to have a lot of false confessions. There was so much national media placed on the cases considering their connection to the Columbine High School shooting that some of the crackpots really came out of the woodwork. During the investigation, DNA and fingerprints were found in the subway, but there were no hits on any of that evidence. It seems that the person that those belonged to was not in a database of any kind. And this DNA and fingerprint evidence has been sent to labs all over and still has not given any clear answers or connections in the case. There is a composite sketch of a suspect that I have included on social media and at altitudecrime.com. From what I understand, this is a man that was seen near the subway or leaving the subway at some point that evening. The suspect is white At the time he was 16 to 20 years old, about five foot seven and between 150 and 170 pounds. Now this suspect is probably still 5'7", but weight could have changed and they would now be 38 to 42 years old. The composite did turn up a lot of leads and really from all over, including Florida and South Carolina, but didn't lead to any really credible leads. There was a town rumor that drug deals were actually being done out of this specific subway after hours, but police looked into this pretty extensively. They actually looked in and questioned people in 50 different drug cases and never found anything linking drug activity to this specific location. The subway stayed closed for multiple months after the murders and two crosses were placed at the location in honor of Nick and Stephanie. According to reporting from the Associated Press, 2,000 people attended Nick and Stephanie's joint funeral, including, quote, Columbine survivor Richard Castaldo sat in a wheelchair during Saturday's service. He was paralyzed when he was shot by the high school gunman, unquote. A song with sadly fitting lyrics was played at Nick and Stephanie's funeral. That was Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. And like I said, the lyrics were fitting for a town ravaged by recent tragedy. As the last verse goes, quote, we're just two lost souls, swimming in a fishbowl, year after year, running over the same old ground. What have we found? The same old fears, wish you were here, unquote. As I said, Nick and Stephanie had a joint funeral and they are actually buried together at the Mount Lindo Nature Garden, west of Littleton, that sits at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Their case has now gone 22 years without being solved. In 2019, there was a reward of $2,000 for information leading to an arrest in Nick and Stephanie's case. In February 2020, the reward was raised to $12,000 with help from Subway Franchise World Headquarters. And then last year in February, 2021, the reward was raised to $100,000. This was on the 21st anniversary of the murder and both Crime Stoppers and community partners in Littleton put up this sum of money. This reward is the largest the Metro Denver Crime Stoppers has ever offered for information for a crime. According to Deborah Takahara's reporting for KDVR, Jefferson County Sheriff Jeff Schrader said, quote, This would be the time for us to go all in and put an amount there that would get the attention of people. Hopefully it gets folks talking and maybe it gets to the person who has the information we need. This one, it hits home. My daughters were the same age Stephanie Hart was at the time that she was killed. In addition to that, the connection to the Columbine community and the tragedies that went on during that same time frame, this has remained top of mind. For that reason, I am passionate to get it solved for the sake of that community, unquote. At this point, a lot of leads that investigators have gotten are town rumors or suspicions by locals. If you have any information in Nick and Stephanie's murder, please contact the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office at 303-271-5606 or the Colorado Bureau of Investigation at 303 303- 271 You can also call the Metro Denver Crime Stoppers at 720-913-STOP, which is 720-913-7867, and then you will be eligible for the $100,000 reward. Tips can also be submitted to Crime Stoppers at MetroDenverCrimestoppers.com slash anonymous dash tips. I will put this link on AltitudeCrime.com for you to use if you have any information about this case. So let's wrap up today with some thoughts on the second case. Musing number one. First off, poor Stephanie's mom, what a way to find out about your daughter's murder. And that's something that I really advocate about a lot is media awareness. When covering cases, you would think that that would have been something kind of obvious, but that's not always top of mind, especially when the media is trying to get information out quickly. Musing number two, Stephanie was born on October 28th, 1983, and Nick was born on March 15th, 1984. And it's pretty wild to think that these two are essentially just frozen in time. They, if they had lived, would be older than me now. And in both of these cases, the case has now been unsolved for longer than these victims were on this earth. Just something to think about, because like I say, I always say that I don't do this for the morbidity of true crime. These are real people, and it's just so sad to think that your killing could be unsolved for so long when you weren't even on this earth long to begin with. Musing number three, Littleton is a very small community. And at the time that Nick and Stephanie's murders happened, there were about 40,000 people living there. So unless this was a totally random drifter, just totally stopping by and just killing somebody to kill someone, someone in that community has to know something. And I don't necessarily mean that in a malicious sense. If you suspect anything at all, or this composite looks the least bit like somebody that you think you could peg for that composite, just call. It won't hurt. It could only help. And if it's not the right lead, everyone will move on. Musing number four, and I think I've said this in like every case in the last six weeks. So we do have DNA and fingerprints from the subway. And again, I'm always hoping that these could come back into play sometime as science around forensics continues to develop. Musing number five. I do want to shout out too that Valentine's Day is also the 37th anniversary of the deaths of Cassandra Rundle, Derek Sturm, and Melanie Sturm that I covered in episode 13, The Murder House. I just didn't want that to go unnoticed because that is a case I'm very passionate about. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I definitely recommend checking it out. Musing number six I don't know what part of this case is worse, that you have two teenagers in the prime and beginning of life that have their lives ended, or that they survive one of the most infamous school shootings in history just to be snuffed out by some piece of trash. From everything I've read, Nick and Stephanie were really bonding and healing through their experience at the shooting together, and it seems like they maybe could have had this very loving life out of this really tragic event. And on top of it, not only do you lose those victims, but the family and friends are going through this whole thing all over again. And like I said, you have to remember these cases are real people, these are real communities, and these are real scars that really stay in towns like this for forever. Okay, guys, well, that's all for today. I will be covering some more of our wonderful listener suggestions in the next few weeks. It's been really fun going through these. I haven't been familiar with a lot of the cases, so it's been really exciting. And like I said last week, it's been so awesome getting to connect with you guys. Please, please, please reach out to me with your thoughts, your suggestions. I want to hear more from you. You can contact me on social media. I am on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And if you go to altitudecrime.com, there's a contact us page that's got an email for me. You're welcome to reach out to me that way. And of course, the website always has this week's source materials on it. Please don't forget, if you haven't done so, I know it's up on your screen. Please follow or subscribe to the podcast. It really helps other people find the podcast. And if you're enjoying the content, why shouldn't they? Well, guys, I know Valentine's Day can be touchy for everyone. I feel like if you're in a couple, it's like a lot of pressure. And if you're not, there's a lot of pressure to feel bad. But I want to tell you guys, the most important person to love is yourself. I love you coming to listen every single week. And I cannot wait to tell you about another case next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 45, The Valentine's Day Murders of Billy Trimbach, Stephanie Hart-Grizel, and Nick Kunzelman was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.